0: One of my favorite writers is a woman by the name of Flannery O'Connor. She's a Roman Catholic writer in the South in the first part of the last century. And she was known for writing what was called the grotesque. Uh, There was a moment of, of revelation in each one of her short stories where a person had to come to grips with who they really are. And my favorite short story from her carries that name, Revelation. It's not a commentary on the book of Revelation, but it's a revelation that a particular person receives in the midst of this story. Now, the story opens up with Mrs. Ruby Turpin sitting in a waiting room with her husband, Claude, and she's looking around at everyone in this waiting room, and she is silently judging them. Based on their appearance, she immediately classifies everyone in that room and considers herself to be superior to them. There's one person that she calls white trash that she's particularly looking down her nose upon as a young college student um, by the name of Mary Grace who is reading a book on human development. But there's one exception in this room. There's one lady who she deems is of a higher class than her. And so she tries to engage this woman in conversation, which is really kind of a a public denunciation of everyone else in that room who's not like Mrs. Turpin and this other lady. And at one point, as the banter goes on, Mrs. Turpin says these words. I thank the Lord that he has blessed me with a good disposition. If it's one thing that I am, Ms. Turpin said with feeling, it's grateful. When I think of all that I could have been besides myself and all I got, a little of everything and a good disposition besides, I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way that it is. At the thought of this, she was flooded with gratitude, and a terrible pang of joy ran through her. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you. And at that very moment, as this woman was saying these things, Mary Grace took her book of human development and threw it right across the room and hit Mrs. Turpin right in the face. Mary Grace got up and she lunged at Mrs. Turpin and began choking her, and the rest of the people pulled her back off, and Ruby looked at this college student and said, what you've got to say to me? And as Mary Grace focused her eyes dead center of Mrs. Turpin, she said, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. (laughs) That was Mrs. Turpin's revelation. And in the midst of the story, or really I should say the rest of the story, is her wrestling before God of why God had to send a message to her like that. (laughs) If she wanted her to be someone else, then God could have made her someone else. And as the story closes, as she's sitting there watering her pigs, (laughs) she gets this vision of all the people that she despises entering heaven ahead of people like her. And at the end of that train are people like her, but all their goodness and, and all their sins are being burned off before they go into heaven. I find that to be a very interesting story. It's one of my favorites that she has written. But on another occasion, she was asked, Why does she have such kind of a violent revelation in her stories as people come to grips with herself? And this is what she said. You have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the heart of hearing you shout, and for the almost blind you draw large and startling figures. I love that. If you read any of um, her writings, you know exactly what she's after there. Well, James, who has written this New Testament document that we've been studying, is trying to make apparent his vision of what a pure and undefiled spirituality before God would look like. And he's using large, startling figures. As he describes for his his, um, friends who are following Jesus, the absurdity of what it would be like if a rich man entered their assembly wearing fine clothes and was gold-fingered, and you gave him preferential treatment over someone who came in and was not like that. If you were with us last week, you know that we just made the observation that in our context it might have looked like this. Suppose a person comes into our church wearing fine clothes and they got an Aggie ring and they obviously have it all together. They they look like us, they dress like us, they root for the right team, we presume. How do we treat him as opposed to someone who would come in right behind that person who is obviously homeless? James is after this kind of thinking. And he's asking us to consider where we stand when it comes to judging people around us on the basis of uh, of appearance. And we made the note last week that it's easy to see favoritism in the lives of others, but can we see it in ourselves? So James is continuing that discussion that he's he's been having with his original audience that he's now having with us. So we're going to call our study today The Royal Law of Love. And let's unpack that train of thought that James is on. He says in verse 8, If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. James summarizes the very heart of the Old Testament uh, Torah, the, the instructions that Israel had for living, as a royal law. And at the very center of that is this notion that you should love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you're a student of Jesus, you know that there are times when he was asked what the summary of the scriptures were. And he said this one point You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your minds. This is the first, I'm sorry, this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, in other words when Jesus boiled down the essential teaching of the Hebrew scriptures, He said it's all about love, about loving God with everything that you got and loving your neighbor as yourself. And so James says in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. This is how God designed you to to live. As a follower of Jesus, this is what God wants from you. But I think that James knows that probably many of us are like Mrs. Ruby Turpin. (laughs) We, we don't necessarily see this working out in our lives. We think we love well, but if we pull back some of the attitudes and presuppositions that we go through life in, we see things a little different. Now, I know James didn't know about Ruby Turpin, but if he knew about her, he would probably say that you need to think a little bit more deeply about what's going on here. So he says in verse 9, But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. That word, partiality, literally means to receive a face. It's an idiom that means to receive someone based on their appearance. The way the New International Version translates it, it's if you show favoritism, or like the way the New Living Translation puts it, but if you show favor to some people over others. Now, all of us can ask this question, right? What are some ways that we show favor to some people over others? How much do we do this on the basis of a person's appearance? Do we do this over a person's education? Looking down on people who aren't as educated as us? Maybe envying those who have more education than us? Do we look down upon people because of their race or their ethnicity, their body type, their, their place of origin? We could go on and on and on. James wants us to wrestle with this issue of partiality, of showing favor to some people and not to others, and to ask ourselves the question, to what degree is this at work in our life? So James is hard-hitting here. He says, if you show partiality, you are committing sin. I wonder how many of us, if we're honest, would define partiality or showing favoritism as sin. Surely, I mean, if it is a sin, it's a small thing. But probably for many of us, we don't think twice about it. And that's because most of us just define sin as as something that is really, really big. But as you know, if you've been here at part part of Mercy Hill Church, that word sin just simply means missing the mark. If God's design for you is love, and to love others as you love yourself, sin is simply missing that mark. I like the way that John Stott summarizes this. I've, I've shared this with you before, I believe. He is a late Anglican minister, and he said, like salvation, sin is a word that belongs to the traditional Christian vocabulary. I'm not a sinner, people often say, because they seem to be associating sin with specific and rather sensational misdeeds like murder, adultery, and theft. But sin has a much wider connotation than that. What the Bible means by sin is primarily self-centeredness. For God's two great commandments are first, that we love him with all our being, and secondly, that we love our neighbor as we love ourselves." Sin, then, is the reversal of this order. It is to put ourselves first, our neighbor next when it suits our convenience, and God somewhere in the background. I find that to be so helpful. Sin is not just simply those big things that people sometimes do, but they can be even those small things that just really betray that we love ourselves more than anything. So James says if, if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. What law is he talking about? That royal law of love. It says you shall love others as yourself. If we show partiality, we're violating that law. We're breaking it. And he says here we're transgressors. That word transgress is just one of those fancy biblical words, theological words, that means crossing the line. Here's the boundary that God wants us to live and to play in. Just like the basketball game has boundaries. And a transgression would be to overstep those boundaries and live in ways contrary to God's design of love for us. And then James says in verse 10 but whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it, become guilty of all of it. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. I wonder how this strikes you. James says, you can be religious and devout. But if you break the law at one place, you become guilty of all of it. There's a word picture that Daniel Doriani uses in his commentary in the book of James, which I thought was really interesting, and I wanted to share it with you. He says, some people think of obedience as a pile of individual good deeds. The pile gets a bit larger with each, each good deed and a bit smaller with each sin. The more good deeds and the larger the pile, the more God is pleased. But James, as, as James sees it, obedience is more like a sheet of glass, one flawless whole, and disobedience is like a brick tossed through that glass, one destructive act that shatters the whole. I think that's exactly how James is seeing this here. As you look at this desire of God that we would love to sin, to show favoritism, is like throwing a brick through that, that law. James goes on and unpacks it a little bit more for us. He says, For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. If James were here, I'd want to ask him the question Do you see showing favoritism as somehow murdering a person? I mean, that sounds absurd to us, but remember his illustration. If someone comes in wearing uh, wealthy clothes and gold on their fingers and you give preferential treatment to that person and to someone who comes in wearing disgusting clothes and dirty clothes and you tell them, you go sit over there, you've dishonored that person. I wonder if James is saying, in a sense, you've, you've killed that person. I don't know, that's the question I, ha- I would have here, but, but don't miss what he's saying here. It's like you have this one kind of big umbrella commandment, what Jesus describes as, as the heart of the Torah. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And underneath this umbrella are all these other commands, like you shall not lie, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not oppress the poor, do not show partiality, do not covet, do not murder, do not pervert justice. All of these are are violations of that one central command to love others as you love yourself. But James also says something interesting here as well. He points out the one who gives these commands. He who said... It's not simply that in our ways of showing favoritism and prejudice towards others we are we're in a sense committing sin against them. It goes much higher than that. Like David said in Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Sin first and foremost is rebellion against God. And that's what Jerry Bridges in his book Transforming Grace says. He says sin in the final analysis is rebellion. Against the sovereign creator, ruler, and judge of the universe. It resists the rightful prerogative of a sovereign ruler to command obedience from his subjects. It says to an absolutely holy and righteous God that his moral laws, like loving your neighbors yourself, his moral laws, which are a reflection of his own nature, are not worthy of our wholehearted obedience. R.C. Sproul, in his classic work, The Holiness of God, put it this way the slightest sin is an act of defiance against cosmic authority. It is a revolutionary act, a rebellious act, where we are setting ourselves in opposition to the one to whom we owe everything. So if we put it like this, even a small sin is a great offense against God. Even just snubbing someone, showing favoritism, maybe even just in our attitude, preferring one kind of person over another, That is a small thing, but isn't a great offense against God. So James goes on in his counsel to us, and he says this, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. James says, envision your life one day when you've lived it and you stand before God and he judges your life according to the royal law. How have you loved others? How will you do? James says if that's going to happen, then we need to act and we need to speak as those who are going to be held according to that that standard. We need to hear James saying that we ought to live as those who one day will stand before God and will be judged by how we have loved our neighbor as ourselves. That's what James is getting at here. And then he says in verse 13, For judgment is without mercy, to the one who has shown no mercy. I told you earlier in our study with James, James, he's, he's going he's to play for keeps. He's going to be hard-hitting sometimes. And to get the attention of his original audience, as well as us who are reading it today, he says, Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. If your life is characterized by not showing mercy, by not loving mercy, then don't deceive yourself into thinking, you will receive mercy when you stand before God. You don't love to show it to others. Why would you want him to show it to you? Well, Someone says, you know, all this talk about sin and transgression and judgment sounds so negative. And my friends, on one level, yes, it is. As I mentioned, James is playing for keeps. It is a big deal how we treat other people. And if we discriminate against others based on their appearance, that is a huge thing. And that is a huge failure. But let's think about what our options are here. One option would be, let's not talk about sin and judgment. Uh, Some people prefer to take the path of, I'm okay, you're okay, and we're all okay. But do we really believe that? When we look at this world, is everyone really okay? We're not. There is something deeply wrong about the human condition. Another option would be to just say sin and judgment is all we're going to talk about. And yes, some churches do just talk about this nonstop. Some Christians, this is the only message that they have, is judgment and condemnation. But I'm reminded of what Cornelius Plantinga, professor at Calvin College, once said. He said, to concentrate on our rebellion, defection, and folly, is to say to the world, I have some bad news, and I have some bad news is to forget that the center of the Christian religion is not our sin, but our Savior. And that's actually the best option to go with there. Remember, James started this discussion on favoritism with these words, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This man who was stricken and smitten, who was despised, who had no outward beauty that we would be drawn to him, nevertheless is the center of our faith and the one who is worthy of all glory. But that's not the last thing that James says. Yes, he said, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But then he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's actually what our third option is. The royal law, that we love God with everything that we've got and love our neighbors as self is meant to actually draw us to the cross of Christ when we look at our own life and we we are convicted about those ways in which we have failed this central command from God we can either despair we can deny it or we can allow it to drive us to the cross of Christ so let's remember that Jesus suffered for our sins and even the sin of favoritism even the sin of not loving others as we love ourself. And let me just say this there is likely in our lives more snubbing, more discriminating, and more judging of people based on superficial prejudice than we often have the courage to admit. James is writing to these first followers of Jesus to warn them about this. We have examples from the New Testament of how Christians have failed at this very thing. And so if we own it, if we we have the courage to admit that, yes, we mess up, we, we do not live as Christ wants us to live in this, we do not live according to the instructions of James here, then we're in a perfect place to cry out for mercy. Paul David Tripp in his book, Wider Than Snow, says this, I come to the Lord with only one appeal, his mercy. I have no other defense. I have no other standing. I have no other hope. I can't escape the reality of my biggest problem, me. So I appeal to the one thing in my life that's sure and will never fail. I appeal to the one thing that is guaranteed not, that is guaranteed not only my acceptance with God, but the hope of new beginnings and fresh starts. I appeal on the basis of the greatest gift I, have ever, I ever have or ever will be given. Because of what Jesus did, God looks upon me with mercy mercy triumphs over justice or just judgment rather as paul would put it where sin increased grace abounded all the more so let's think about it this way my friends we are learning that we are more broken messed up rebellious prejudiced and yes even sinful than we often have the courage to admit and yet at the same time in christ we are more loved pursued forgiven and embraced by our heavenly father than we have ever dared to dream possible. The gospel of Jesus tells us that God pursues people who have broken that royal law of love, who have failed at loving him, who have failed at loving others, and He has come on a rescue mission for people just like us. To rescue us from our folly, and to change us and transform us, so that we're more like Christ, and do live out this royal law of love. So in Christ, mercy triumphs over judgment. But it should also triumph over judgment in our own life as well. How does mercy triumph over judgment in our own lives? How can you move towards those who are not like you? Staying with the same theme of poverty, the Apostle John put it like this. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Because of what Jesus has done and demonstrating his great love for us, we ought to fall in line by demonstrating that love towards others as well. And then John says this, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Let me ask you this question. Against whom are you most likely to close your heart? For you might not be a poverty kind of thing, but do you close your heart against people of a different ethnicity than you? Do you close your heart against people who are educated differently than you, who live on the wrong side of the tracks from you? Let me tell you how God got my attention in my own life on this issue just a few weeks ago. It was the day before I was going to Washington for that conference, and I was, I was so looking forward just to, to getting out of Dodge for a little bit and shifting gears and to receive some instruction, and I went to the grocery store at the corner of Villa Marie in Texas, and as I was walking out, I was going along my way, and I hear someone say, excuse me, sir, and the first thing that happened was my heart started closing down. I didn't even know who said it. There's someone who wanted my attention, and I just said no and I looked over at this person, and it was an elderly lady using a walker. And she said, excuse me, sir, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure, what is it? And she says, "Uh, my husband just left me, and I have nowhere to go, and I was wondering if you could help me buy some groceries. And I I said, I don't have any cash on me. I do have some care packets in our car that I'd be glad to help you out with. And I said, I can go get those and bring them back to you real fast. And she said, that would be wonderful. And she said, "Can I actually walk with you to your car?" And I said, "Sure. I'm, I'm actually, at, when I go to the store, I park as far out as I can just to get a little exercise going." And so I was like, "I'm parked a little ways away." And she said, "That's fine." So she, she pulled her walker up next to me, and I stand on the side there so the cars won't um, hit her. And and she starts telling me her story more and more. And my heart begins breaking for this woman. And I get to the car, and I give her these these packages, and it has food in it, and some places where she can stay, and. And uh, I just gave her my phone number. I said, this is my phone number. I said, I'm going out of town first thing in the morning, but um, if there's anything that I can do for you, um, please give me a call, and I can make sure that that you get that. But there was a moment. Here I am as a a Christian who's been following Christ since I was 16 years old, who's been an ordained minister since 1999, and someone asked me, excuse me, sir, and my heart just closed. Because I've been in that parking lot before, and people have asked me for help and I just knew it was going to be another situation. Like, why did my heart close? Why, why did I, as a, as a minister who is encouraging our church to love our community well, close my heart in that moment? God convicted me, and, and, I, and I felt like I was literally having to push my heart back open to receive this woman. And so let me ask you this question. Could it be that for you to fulfill the royal law, law of loving your neighbors, yourself... God might be nudging you to seek out those who are not like you. The reason I ask that question is is because I know it's easy for you to love people who are just like you. Jesus said even, even people who are pagans know how to do that. Jesus calls us to love even our enemies. And so I wonder if in studying this passage from the book of James and him highlighting this law of love, and highlighting that we're going to be judged by that. Could we maybe intentionally seek out people who are not like us, just so we can practice loving others as we love ourselves? I think that's a good challenge. Let me put it this way. Where does mercy need to triumph over judgment in your life? If you claim to follow Jesus, you acknowledge that his mercy has conquered you. Where does mercy... to conquer judgment in your life. In just a moment, we're going to sing this song, Thy Mercy, My God. And it goes like this. Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the last hath won my affections and bound my soul fast. Without thy sweet mercy, I could not live here. Sin would reduce me to utter despair. But through thy free goodness, my spirits revive And he that first made me still keeps me alive. Thy mercy is more than a match for my heart which wonders to feel its own hardness depart. Dissolved by thy goodness I fall to the ground and weep for the praise of the mercy I found. You know what this song is teaching us? It's teaching us that if we want to see our own hard heart melted that we need to come be reminded of the mercy of God to us in Christ Jesus over and over and over again. And so my friends, may the mercy of God dissolve the hardness in all of our hearts as God enables us to fulfill the royal law of loving our neighbors as ourselves.